Well, good morning. My name's Alan. I'm one of the pastors, and um, we're continuing our study in the book of John. So I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We spent uh, the last couple of weeks looking at John's introduction to this gospel where he lays out uh, some of his broader themes and purposes. And this week we're going to transition into seeing kind of the details of what took place in his life and ministry. And um, all of the Gospels actually begin talking about John the Baptist. So he's a prominent figure in the life and ministry of Jesus, especially at the beginning of his ministry. And hopefully today we'll see why. And uh, the title of today's sermon is The Pointer and the Point. And um, let's begin reading God's Word. I want to invite you to stand with me, please, as we read these verses. John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him. Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. John answered them. I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. Where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that your word, which stands forever, would ring out in our hearts this morning, that we would see Jesus. We, we sang this morning, we turn our eyes to you. Lord, as we turn our eyes to you, perform the miracle of opening our eyes so that we can see you in your beauty and your glory. We need your divine intervention for that to happen, and we ask for that right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Pizza Hut and messianic expectations. That's probably a phrase you're not expecting to see in the same sentence. Um, how many of, how, kids, how many of you like pizza? I mean, I think most kids like pizza, yeah. You know, p- pizza hasn't been around actually forever. Um, in the 1960s, the very first Pizza Hut was fighting to make the best, most authentic, original Neapolitan Italian pizza. But there were two problems. Uh, One was that the ingredients they had to work with were limited to what they could source locally. And two, it 
turned out as they were going through the process of trying to refine this recipe that the taste buds of the American people were not that interested in the original Neapolitan Italian pizza. And which is why the, the, more they, the, the closer they thought they were getting to the original Italian pizza pie, the less pizza they actually sold. So they kept experimenting with the recipe, thinking that maybe they missed something. They're inserting different ingredients, trying to hit that target. And by making minor tweaks here and there, they began to notice that certain recipes sold really well and others did not. And in the process, they sort of accidentally came up with pizza as we know it today, which is very different from the original Neapolitan Italian pizza that they set out to create. And in only 13 years, the Carney brothers, who had taken out a $600 loan from their mom to start this business, turned it into the number one pizza restaurant chain in the world in both sales and numbers of restaurants. Of course, any true Italian would probably say that's not pizza, but it's their version of it. To them, it was. It was their own version of pizza. And it was a version that appealed to the Western palate way more than the original would have. Now, as we come to this section of John's gospel, we actually have a similar situation. Anytime our taste buds trump faithfulness, that may work out fine for sales like it did for Pizza Hut, but it ultimately blinds us to the most important realities that might be right in front of us. John the Baptist was working in a context that was looking for a certain kind of Messiah, a certain a Messiah that would appeal to their own contextual palates, as it were, more than it was actually faithful to Scripture. John was there to bring clarity and point people to the real deal and not this subpar fake that they were holding out for and looking for. Uh, it, something they had come up with in their own minds to suit their own tastes. And likewise in our day, isn't it true that we can come up with versions of Jesus that more appeal to our own tastes than they are faithful to Scripture? And we too need to be brought back to this truth about who Jesus really is as the Bible gives him to us. We need to look to him and see him as he really is. We can't be driven by our own wishful thinking or carried along by our own self-confidence. Our problem is deeper and wider than what can be fixed by any of those things. And our spiritual taste buds, by the way, are corrupted by sin and drawn to every kind of substitute, substitutes that will only ultimately fail us. We need nothing short of a divine miracle to be rescued from ourselves. And so very simply, the main point of today is we look to Jesus, not ourselves, to be cleansed from sin and empowered for Christian living. Very simple message but one that I hope we'll see is very complex at the same time and easier to say than to do. <laughs> it's a simple point, but it is deeply complex in practice. So how do we do it? Well, I think we can learn at least three ways that this happens from this account about John the Baptist. Number one, the witness points away from himself. 
So John the Baptist was introduced earlier in the chapter. You can see there in verses six through eight where John the writer uh, tells us there was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. But at this time, uh, the people didn't realize that's what John was all about. Uh, We're told that the Jews sent priests and Levites to come figure out who this John figure was. I mean, after all, he dressed weird, he ate weird, he lived in the desert, he preached a message of repentance. Tons of people are going to him and starting to follow him and getting baptized by him. And they're, they're, they're wondering, what in the world is going on? Who is this guy? And they come and they ask him that. Now, they're not asking, like, what's your name? Is it John or is it Joe? Or they're, they're, When they say, who are you, they're, they're meaning, what is your role? You have something unique is going on with you, and we want to understand what it is. John tells them plainly, well, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. So they ask, well, then are you Elijah? Now, that's a fair question, uh, given how he dressed. He dressed similar to how the Bible tells us Elijah dressed, a prophet from the Old Testament. It's also fair because the last words of the Old Testament found in the book of Malachi state that God will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So the Old Testament ends with a prophecy that Elijah's coming. 400 years pass, these guys are thinking, is this him? To complicate matters, later in the gospel account, Jesus would actually affirm that John the Baptist was Elijah. That has come. But here, John denies it. No, I'm not Elijah. Why did he deny it? Well, because what John is saying is, I'm not the Elijah you're thinking. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the... the suiting your palate version of what you expect for the preparer of the Messiah to be like. So he denies it. No, not that. He also denies being the prophet that was expected to appear in the last days. And so frustrated, these guys demand an answer. Look, we've been, verse 22, we've been sent to find out an answer. I mean, you get, give us something, John. And it's interesting how John answers the question, isn't it? Look at verse 23. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. Now, When we think of Isaiah, the whole second half of the book of Isaiah is this whole account about God's plan to redeem a people for himself. It's a wonderful section of the book of Isaiah. It talks about this forerunner who would blaze the trail for the coming redeemer. And John quotes a section, a scripture from that section and says, I am that guy. But he Notice the way he says it. He doesn't even point to himself. He doesn't say, uh, here's who I am or something like that. He just describes himself as a voice. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I mean, this would have been a great opportunity for John the Baptist to really make it about himself and uh, point to his success and his numbers and how many followers and his growth rate and his rate of return on preaching to baptisms and like really, you know, say, look, this is working. But he doesn't make it about himself. Rather, he points to Jesus. He is a faithful witness who points away from himself and points to Christ. And you really see this in this sobering statement in verse 26, where he says, among you stands one you do not know. Now, this phrase, this idea will become a theme throughout the Gospel of John, as we'll see. That he's right there in front of you, but you don't see him for who he really is. They don't really grasp his worth and majesty. We see this 
worth and majesty come out in verse 27, don't we? Where he he describes him as even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal, I am not worthy to untie. Um, In that day, students were expected to do everything for their teacher that a slave would do except one thing, take off his shoes. So kids, have you ever had your parents say, can you take my shoe off? I don't think I've done that to my kids, but my dad would do that. He'd come home from playing basketball and he'd be like, can you take my shoe off? And I'd, oh, it stinks, you know, and I'm like taking his shoe off. Um, In that day, the only person who would take the, the sandal off would be the slave. And so when John says, I'm not even worthy to do that, he's ranking himself below that of a slave. Uh, what he's saying really is that he's not even worthy to do the work of a slave. He's placing himself in terms of rank below that. And of course, the focus is not so much on John's worthlessness per se. It's not that John suddenly realized or became worthless or something like that. But what what the focus is, is on the supreme worth of Jesus. That as Jesus comes along, uh, he redefines rank for everyone else. And likewise, when we see ourselves rightly and Christ rightly, we'll be able to say like John the Baptist would say in John chapter 3, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. And so John is realizing it. He's above all. He's greater. Even though this Messiah is walking among them and performing signs and wonders and demonstrating that he truly is above all, The crazy thing is that he's saying there stands one among you who is all these things and yet you don't know it. They still miss it. And the same is true today, isn't it? Jesus has come. We have the witness of the scripture. He's still here when we gather. The spirit is among us in our midst, illuminating Jesus to our hearts and minds. And yet how often do we miss it as well? How often are we just self-consumed. I, I grew up in church, and for kids growing up in church, it's so easy to mistake being around the things of Jesus for a personal relationship with Jesus and vital connection to his community. It's something that we can be very deceived about. But how often would God want to open our eyes to see Jesus in all of his worth and beauty, to really see him for who he is? May it not be said of us that there stands one among us, but we don't know him. May we never mistake the forms and shapes of Christianity for actually knowing Jesus. It's just so easy to incorporate the rhythms of religion into our lives while the substance of Christianity and the experience of Christ in our hearts are missing. You know, we we like to be around it that kind of stuff. We like to be around it, but we don't want it to really mess with us too much. We want to say and think and believe we're Christian, but maybe we're not willing to sacrifice for the good of the kingdom. We hardly ever confess our sins and struggles to other believers. We don't like to admit when we're wrong or ask for forgiveness or seek godly counsel or come before God in prayer that he might change our hearts. If that describes you, listen, there stands one among you that you don't know. And maybe you feel the sting of that truth that, oh, I don't know him as I should. It's okay to feel the sting of that truth, but feel the comfort of the truth that's right there next to it. There stands one among you. 
He's here. He is with you. He is in your midst. As Paul would say in Acts chapter 17, he is not far off from any of you. He is right here. He has not cast us off in his judgment, but he's right here, arms extended saying, come to me. He is here with his loving arms, reaching out to us even now in the pages of scripture, beckoning us to come to him, beckoning us to be fed by him, to be delighted in him. And so God wants to grant this miracle, a miracle that we need. He wants to grant that miracle every time we open our, every time we come to the scriptures to see him. He wants us to see Jesus more clearly. He wants us to know him. This was John the Baptist's mission as well, pointing to Jesus. Now, the reason we miss him so often is because we can become so consumed with ourselves, right? Pastor Billy's used this analogy of the thumb, right? And how when it's in front of our eyes, it, it seems to fill our vision with this one thing that's very little, but in perspective, it's, it's really not anything compared. You know, sometimes the thumb is just ourselves, It's not some other thing or some situation. We think we're great and ourselves have consumed our own view. We think we're the most important. Our feelings get hurt if we don't get invited to something. We get angry when someone doesn't treat us with the respect we think we deserve. We might labor and serve and sacrifice in an area only to see the credit go to someone else. It's easy to live as if we're at the center of our universe. But John's attitude here just shows us that, man, we're nothing. Christ is everything. Edward Clink writes, the church narrates God to the world. I love that phrase. We're, we're always telling a story with our lives. And part of what our mission is to, is to tell the story of the gospel to the watching world. The church narrates God to the world, he says. Notice this perceptive statement. The ease with which a person puts himself or herself at the center or his or her experiences as the plumb line is the arch enemy of the church. God and God alone is the primary actor in the world and the primary subject matter of the church's message. See, Clink is pointing out something very important. He's not saying that it's merely placing ourselves at the center that's the enemy of the church. In his view, he says it's the ease at which we do that. Do Do you feel that gravitational pull? It's so easy to make ourselves the center, right? It's just... So easy. In fact, it's so easy that to do so, in his view, presents a great danger to the church. As much as anything else, it threatens gospel centrality, corporately, as well as individually. I mean, think about my own life. I mean, the times when I'm experiencing the most tension on the inside, anxiety, discontentment, or those, it's when I've made myself the center of my focus. I've taken my eyes off of Jesus and I've made myself the center of my focus. There's several ways we can do that. And they're not all immediately obvious. One, we can inflate our own personal importance. We can think of ourselves as more important than we really are. Could elaborate on all of these, but in the interest of time, I'm not. Um, We could minimize our own personal importance as well, which is another subtle way to be man-centered when you think about it. The first one, to inflate our own sense of personal importance, denies the reality of God's sovereignty. God needs my help. God can't do it. So it's all about me. So I need to do it. But the other one actually denies the reality of man's responsibility that the Bible calls us to. 
Well, I can't make any difference at all. Therefore, I don't need to do anything because I'm so worthless. And, and we minimize the fact that God uses means and he calls us into action. He calls us to walk in holiness. He calls us to be faithful. And so man-centeredness can show up in, in making less of ourselves than what God says. And it's a subtle danger. Man-centeredness can show up not only in how we view ourselves, but how we view others. We can make it more about a certain person or even a gifted pastor. But the best leadership is the kind that points away from itself. It's the kind that points towards the one that they are called to bear witness to. We can make good things, even pastors, biblical community, we can make good things like that, ultimate things. And when we do, it's just a matter of time before we walk away wounded and hurt and disappointed. Because after all, God substitutes idols never deliver on what they promise. That's why we must look to Jesus, not to ourselves and not even to other people. Just as a faithful witness points away from himself and we look to Jesus and not ourselves because Jesus is, point number two, the lamb who takes away sin. You see the phrase there in verse 29, uh, the next day, Jesus was coming towards him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On this side of the cross, now that we have the whole Bible, this phrase makes a lot more sense to us. I mean, after all, our church went through the book of Hebrews. Like, we get the Lamb imagery. We saw it in the book of Revelation. It makes sense to us. But you got to think, how would this have landed on the original hearers pre-cross? The image of a lamb would have gone back to the Exodus when it was the lamb that, and the lamb that was slain whose blood would be put on the doorposts and lintels that shielded the people from the wrath of God. In, the sacrificial, in a sacrificial system, a lamb was brought as a sacrifice on a regular basis. The other half of the phrase, took away the sin, that reminds us actually of the scapegoat. So that's a goat where the, the sin was placed on the goat and the goat went off into the wilderness. That was not a lamb though, that was a goat. Now, yes, in one sense, Jesus is the goat, greatest of all time. But, he, but the imagery employed here is lamb, right? Later, we read in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Again, that's the second half of Isaiah section, all about redemption. Isaiah 53, we have all these descriptors about the suffering servant. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. We're told that he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief and bear the iniquities of the people so that they would be counted righteous in God's sight. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for those transgressors. All this imagery, John pulls together, he draws together all this imagery in this phrase to point to Christ as the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. But it's not just that he takes away sin. There's another twist in this phrase. He takes away the sin of the world, it says. Again, let's just remember the context here. John the Baptist is working, it tells us, just outside Jerusalem. Jews from Jerusalem are trying to figure out who he is. And his answer includes all these Old Testament references that any good Jew would have recognized. But there's a twist on this one. The Lamb of God who takes away sin does so, it says, for the world. Not for the Jews only. 
Of course, this was envisioned throughout the Old Testament. We have glimpses of this. But messianic expectations in the first century were such that they were not expecting the Gentiles to be part of this redemptive plan. They couldn't even conceive of that. In fact, it was these Gentiles that were the problem. They're the reason for our persecution and for our dispersion. But we learn here it's this world, this Gentile world, this world that includes both Jew and Gentile, I should say, that is the object of his atoning work. In other words, no one is cut off from God's grace because of his race or any other non-moral category. We read in, 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 in verse 12 that anyone who would receive him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 30 This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. At this point, John goes on to make some profound theological statements. He says that Jesus ranks before him because he was before him. Now this was already mentioned in verse 15. Yes, Jesus was born in space and time, but he eternally existed with the Father before time began. Remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John the Baptist here is declaring that the eternally existent God in the form of Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternally existent Son of God, clearly and obviously outranks him on an infinite scale. This is the Lamb who takes away sin, who existed in eternity past, in holy, happy contentment in the Trinity, going back into eternity past, infinitely to the past. What do you think about that? He existed in the Trinity as a triune God, but at some point in space and time, he took on flesh to ransom us, as we sing. We have to think about this. I mean, we think we can atone for our sins and work our way into God's favor. I mean, the very notion is offensive to God, who sent his son, Jesus, to do that for us. I mean, we may not realize that. John didn't realize that. He tells us twice. I didn't know him at first, but God opened his eyes to see it, to recognize this truth, a truth that every one of us must ultimately come to terms with. Who is Jesus? See, this whole narrative is about John the Baptist turning the question around. You're coming, finding out, you're asking the wrong question. You want to know who I am. The question you should be asking is, who is he? That's the one that you need to come to terms with, as every one of us must. Now, John was recognizing that truth. And what he was recognizing was that only the eternal divine son of God, who is the lamb, who takes away sin, can atone for sin. And, going back to that phrase of the world, Anyone can get in on it. And that is good news for us. That is hope for us in evangelism. That's hope for us for a lost and dying world that has gone nuts. Jesus stands offering his salvation to anyone who would believe in his name and who would receive him. He will grant the right to become children of God. Oh, that's such good news. And so anyone can get, on, get in on it. If you haven't, I invite you to do that today. You can come to Jesus and believe in him and receive him, receive this gift that he did, that he offers you in the death of his own life on the cross, rising from the dead. Repent, turn from self-reliance on your own good works, your own efforts, and cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus and he will happily and readily receive you. Now, 
Where are we looking to other ways to atone for sin? Only Jesus can take away our sin. Only Jesus can carry away the guilt that we have because of our sin. Only Jesus can extinguish the wrath of God that we deserved because of our sin. Only he can fully extinguish it. So we look to him, not to ourselves, for the cleansing we need. And it's what we point others to as well. And this was John's role, pointing others to it. You see it there in verse 31. For this purpose I came to baptize with water. What is that? That's a call to repentance we learned from the other gospels. He was baptizing with water that Christ might be revealed to Israel. He came to testify, point to Jesus as the eternal son of God who came to atone for sin. And it's our role as well. Do you realize every time Just some practical examples. In Sunday morning, how many opportunities we have to point to Jesus? If you serve on the greeters as people are coming in, you're welcoming people with a welcome from Jesus. How would Jesus welcome sinners? How did Jesus welcome the religious people of his day? How did Jesus treat his friends and family? How did he treat strangers? Greeters, you're on the front lines of pointing people to Jesus in the way that you greet. Children, it's the same thing. We're pointing people to the lamb who takes away sin when we're serving in SGC kids. We're telling a bit of the story and somebody else comes up next week and tells a bit of the story and kids are being rambunctious and picking their noses and fighting with each other and having to be separated. But you know what? The truth is going out and we're pointing them to the only one who can atone for their sins. Because that's what God calls Christians to do. And we know that this is the ultimate joy and hope and fulfillment and destination of every human being that God has for them. Now, nothing else will satisfy. Only Jesus will. So we set truth before them over and over again. It's what we do in parenting. It's what we do in discipleship group. It's what we do when we engage in evangelism in our community. So to recap, the pointer points away from himself to the lamb who takes away sin, and the Lamb who takes away sin cleanses us from sin and sends His Holy Spirit to empower us. So point three, the Spirit empowers Christ and His people. So verse 29 to 31 tell us what John had to say about who Jesus was. Verse 32 to 34 describe what John saw. Look at verse 32. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him remained on him. Now, in the Old Testament, the Spirit certainly came upon people uh, temporarily, God's special messengers. At times, remember Saul, the Spirit was actually withdrawn from Saul. All of those messengers really eventually died. Their ministry always gave way to another messenger. They were all pointers, but they were not the point. Jesus arrives, the Spirit descends on Jesus and remains on him because Jesus is the point. He's who everyone else before was pointing ahead to. And the, the image of this dove remaining on Jesus makes that point that this is no ordinary messenger. This is one in whom the Spirit of God dwells in fullness. Certainly Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God and there's not, there was never a time when Jesus was not God or did not operate with the power of the Spirit. But here at the outset of his ministry, this was a sign to John and everyone else that the power of God was with this man. And this man was so unique, the power of the Spirit would never depart from him. And this uniquely qualifies him not to just baptize with water, John states, but to baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus' ministry. Secondly, will be to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot of baptism talk in these verses. John's doing it with water. Jesus will do it with the Holy Spirit. Just as God poured out the Holy Spirit in full measure upon Jesus, Jesus will pour out the Holy Spirit on his people. He promises to do that. The, 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 the shadows of that are here in the beginning. We'll read more about it later in the book of John. We'll see it fulfilled initially in Acts chapter 2 and perpetuated through the church throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, we see that the Spirit plays a prominent role in the life of the spiritual community that is defined and marked by an experience of God's presence in and with and among his people. He will baptize them, it says, or immerse them with the Holy Spirit. And that's how radical the transformation is that we need. So in a couple of chapters, we'll be in chapter 3. We'll read about the need for the new birth. You remember Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he tells him, that's a miracle that only the Spirit can bring about. Believers are said to be born by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, we were all baptized into one Spirit and we're all made of one Spirit to drink. For Ephesians 1, 13 says, at the moment we believed, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, we're granted this new heart by which we can actually obey God and experience power over sin. Now, notice how these two things, point number two, if you need to look at your notes, point number two, point three, notice how these two things work together. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away sin and the Son of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. As the Lamb... He provides the cleansing from sin that we need. As the baptizer, he provides the power over sin that we need. And we need both. We don't just need to be forgiven. We need that. Oh, we need that. That's the foundation. That's the starting point. But ongoingly, we need the power of the Spirit to live faithful Christian lives. And the Lamb who takes away sin is the baptizer who sends the Holy Spirit to empower us to actually do this. We need this cleansing. We need this power. You know, there, there's the song. Uh, have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That's cleansing power is what we need, isn't it? We need to be cleansed of sin and its guilt and its effects. And we need power to live the Christian life. Augustus Toplady, if you're not, if you would rather not do the, uh, the campfire hymns from 100 years ago, maybe you like Augustus Toplady from 300 years ago or so. And his hymn, Rock of Ages, said it very well in his phrase, double cure. From... Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. What's the double cure? Save from wrath and made me, make me pure. We need both, don't we? We need to be saved from wrath. And we need to be made pure in our actual lives. To live faithfully to Jesus. To become more like Christ in his character and his mission. Both of these truths come together in this passage. The lamb who cleanses from sin is also the baptizer who empowers us with the Holy Spirit. And these twin truths about the person and work of Christ lead John to conclude in verse 34. Oh this, this is the son of God. No doubt. So just ask you practically. Are you asking for the Spirit's power on a regular basis? I know, me personally, I mean, I know this theologically. I've read an embarrassing amount of books about it. 
but functionally, I am not consciously seeking the Spirit's daily empowerment and infilling, which is what Ephesians 5.18 commands. So what does that say about where my dependence really lies? We, can, we, we don't just be self-reliant by waking up in the morning and going, self, I'm going to rely on you today because I'm wonderful. And I'm, it, 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 it happens by neglect of conscious dependence on the Spirit and asking for God's help on a regular basis. It's as simple as that. So might it be that when I'm not consciously asking for that, might it be that I'm looking to myself and my own skills as sufficient for the task in front of me? Oh, as followers of Jesus, may we look to Jesus for both the cleansing we need for our sins and failures and for the power that we need to live for Jesus and to live like Jesus. Remember, as we say in our mission statement, the Spirit empowers us for mission and ministry. In other words, world and church. Jesus promises to take away sin and empower us with this Holy Spirit. Initially at conversion, yes, that's what we would consider the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but ongoingly throughout our lives, what we would call the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We need both. And so we look to Jesus for both. We look to Jesus not to ourselves for the cleansing from sin that we need and the power of the Spirit that we need to live the Christian life. This is why Jesus is the point. This is why Jesus is everything. To wrap this up, the story is told about a great Italian conductor of the early 20th century named Arturo Toscanini. He had just finished conducting Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, 75 minutes of intense emotion and energy with a finale that we would recognize as Ode to Joy. It was the last symphony that Beethoven would ever write. It said that he was completely deaf at this point. And it was quite possibly the most majestic piece that he had ever written, pushing and stretching the boundaries of the musical genre of his day by including choral parts in the end of it and even uh, vocal solo parts, something that was not happening, didn't happen in, any, in anything else that he was doing at the time. At the conclusion of the symphony that Toscanini had just conducted, the crowd went wild, as they should at the end of a piece like that. It's, it's really quite majestic. Extended applause was given, you know, the, the routine formalities shaking the hand of the first chair and the routine formalities took place and the crowd just continued to applaud and going, going nuts and after some time, eventually it started to die down and Toscanini turned to the orchestra and, and he leans into them and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I am nothing. And as it's quieting down, he says, ladies and gentlemen, you are nothing. <laughs> now, they had probably heard that because he was a tough conductor and uh, pushed people. He said, you are nothing. And then he, he quieted even more and he said, but Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. See, Toscanini understood that there's a vast difference between someone who plays the part and even does so faithfully and the one who wrote those parts. The orchestra and its conductor were merely pointers to the greatness of Beethoven. Sure, they could play the part, but it was Beethoven and his genius and his glory that were the point of that performance and the applause that followed. It would not have been possible had 
Beethoven not employed all of his musical genius into this composition. And so Toscanini rightly recognized that that's where the glory goes. We're players on the stage. We're playing the part. But as he says, Beethoven is everything. And it's a truth that John the Baptist understood as well. It's why he pointed away from Jesus. And I mean to Jesus and away from himself. And why we must do the same. So, you know, we could look at one another and say, brothers and sisters, I am nothing. Brothers and sisters, you are nothing. Jesus is everything, everything, everything. So let's look to him, right? For the cleansing we need, for the power we need to live the Christian life that he's called us to live. And let's look to him now, can we? Let's stand together. Oh Lord, we look to you God, we ask that you would forgive us for all of the uh, ways that we look to ourselves, depend on ourselves, think more highly of ourselves than we ought, make issues in our lives about us. Lord, we want to think more highly of you, which will cause us to just think rightly about ourselves. And we need your help for that, Lord. We need divine intervention to open our eyes, to see your worth and beauty, to see you for who you really are. We just invite you to do that now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.